you want to open up to Nehemiah, we're going to do the last chapter today and then kind of backtrack one more message next week, and that'll finish up Nehemiah. So we're going to read chapter 13 today, and two reasons I uh, thought it would be good to do 13 and then go back and do an 11 and 12 next week is two weeks ago we talked about chapter 10 where they committed, uh, renewed the covenant, and then chapter 13 is them basically breaking everything they committed, potentially up to 10 years, but not more than that later. Um, So we don't know exactly how long it was. It was definitely more than a year because Nehemiah went back uh, to Persia and... And he came back, so that took a while. It's like a thousand-mile journey. So definitely more than a year, but not very long in there. These two chapters are related. They cover all the same ground, uh, things they committed to that they broke specifically brought up. And so we're going to read chapter 13 here. And as we read it, I just want you to kind of think about what... What is the reason? Why is it that they didn't follow through on their commitment? There's hints, but it doesn't flat out say every time this is why they didn't follow through here. So let's read, starting in verse 1 of Nehemiah 13. On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now, descent. Before this, Elishab, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. In the thirty-second year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time asked leave of the king, and came to Jerusalem. And then I discovered the evil that Elishab had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God, and I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shalmiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites. And as their assistant, Hanan the son of Zachar, son of Matthian, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done. 
for the house of my God and for his service. In those days I saw Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way, and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice, but I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days also I saw the Jews had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them, and cursed them, and beat some of them, and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons to take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Not a good verse there to make your life verse. Um, and really it doesn't, <laughs> just let's just give the context here. Um, it's probably... You know, there's a lot of verses like this in the Old Testament where you're asking, is this descriptive or prescriptive? You know, is this just describing what happened or is this something you should do? And uh, I was preparing for this series and I just didn't really know. But then when Trevor Johnson came, he talked about um, being out in the jungle and there was, you know, nobody there to enforce anything. And he talked about these people doing these things and he basically had to take the law into his own hands. And um, I thought of this verse. I was like, well, that actually is a really good illustration of what probably happened here when they're thousands of miles um, away from uh, the you know the rulers. And you see throughout the book, people are just totally wild, just planning murders and all these crazy things. Um, and so he's the governor at this time. Nehemiah is by this time. And so um, it's possible that it's kind of like that, where he's, he's, the, he's the law and he had to take it into his own hands here. Um, but yeah, not, not something that we should do today except maybe if you're in the middle of the jungle like uh, Trevor Johnson, hundreds of miles from any police or anything like that. So um, moving on. 26. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among many nations, there was no king like him. And he was be beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Elishib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleanse them from everything foreign, and I establish the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering 
at appointed times for the first fruits, remember me, O oh my God, for good. So, like we talked about two weeks ago, pretty discouraging ending to the book of Nehemiah, basically pointing forward to Christ how we need a new covenant, we need a better covenant, that there was this thousand, multiple thousand year cycle of hearing from God, disobeying God, recommitting, and over and over falling back into the sin that they promised not to do. And just shows that we need the new covenant, we need a better covenant, we need Christ to not only to show us how to live, but to provide blood to wash us of our sins, um, and his spirit to help us, and a new heart um, provided uh, in regeneration. So we need all that, we need the new covenant, and... Ultimately, you know, we spent quite a long time discussing differences between the New Covenant and the Old Covenant, and it was kind of technical and not the most exciting sermon of all, but basically there are some things we can apply from the Old Testament to the to us in the New Testament, and there were probably some real believers here, um, as well as some that were just following uh, tradition, and they didn't really know the Lord. So today, let's think about how can this particular passage apply to us, you know, um, and ask the question, what causes us to fail in following God? You know, we want to follow God, we commit to follow God, and then uh, a month, two months, three months, a year, two years, three years, four years, ten years later, uh, you're doing all the things you said you didn't want to do anymore. You were walking with God, and now uh, you're not. And so rather than speculate which we will do a little bit of just because we have to read between the lines on some of this. I thought it would be good to read from the New Testament what Jesus said. He specifically talked to us about um, following him and people that fall away. And he gave the parable of the wheat and some of the other parables, the parable of the sower, and um, quite a few really relate to this topic. And I just thought we could read. I'll read here together. If you want to turn there, I'm going to read from Matthew 13 kind of the conclusion of the parable of the sower because it talks about people committing and then not following the Lord and some of the causes there. So I'm going to kind of lean on this passage because it's safe. You know, it's like, well, I'm not 100% sure on everything here from Nehemiah 13 what led to this, but Jesus taught us. And so we can see if we can spot some of these things in this passage. So I'm going to read Nehemiah, uh, sorry, Matthew 13, 9 to... 19 through 23, which is Jesus' kind of dis- conclusion of the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not an- understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arise on the count of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it provides un- proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another case sixty, and in another case thirty. So, quite a few reasons here in this passage given uh, why people fall fall away. Um, 
The first is they just don't understand it. That's the first one on the path. The evil one comes and snatches the word that's been sown on his heart, specifically says he doesn't understand it. And then the next, tribulation and persecution arise on the count of the word, and they fall away. The next one, cares of the world and deceitfulness of riches choke out the word. And then the last one um, proves fruitful. So let's think about this in relation to and kind of in combination with Nehemiah 13 and see if we can just ask ourselves, is there anything that is leading us to fall away or to fail to follow God or could in the future that we can watch out for? Now, I think I'm just going to hit these one by one and um, kind of summarize here. But in Nehemiah 13, 4, it's kind of the first one I want to talk about. And you can turn back there if you want. We're going to kind of go back and forth, but I'll just read the verses. Nehemiah 13, 4 is where it talks about Elishib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers. And it specifically mentions that he was related to Tobiah. And if you remember earlier, he was one of the ones persecuting Nehemiah. And so we can read between the lines here and guess or make a educated guess that this relationship um, potentially peer pressure, maybe persecution. If if Tobiah was willing to threaten Nehemiah, um, if he when he wanted to follow God and do what God wanted, it's very possible he would do the same thing here to Elishib. Or it's possible that there was money involved. Um, he was um, potentially maybe paid him, or uh, it could just simply be peer pressure, just like um, this re- strong relationship, and he's wanting to do what he wants him to do and it leads him to taking all these things that should have been in the temple out and giving this guy a chamber who shouldn't even be in there Um, and so one thing we could say how, how does that relate to us well we could just ask ourselves is there any group or person that we're listening to and you know, not doing what God wants us to do? Uh, is it maybe persecution? We're afraid of persecution, so we do something that we know is wrong, but to avoid something difficult happening? Or it could just simply be an unwise commitment, you know? Um, maybe he just committed. You know, it specifically says earlier on that a lot of these people had made agreements with Tobiah, and people were sending him letters about all these good things that he's doing. And or, uh, Tobiah and this other guy who will come up later. Um, but basically, an unwise commitment. You know, there's a danger in certain personalities, and we don't know what this guy's personality was, but there's a danger that some people fall into, and you just have to know yourself to know whether this is you, that you just really want to say yes to people. And it's really hard for you to say no. And what ends up happening is you do end up saying no, uh, but you just don't really get to choose what you say no to. Because if anybody who asks you for help or for something, you always say yes, suddenly your schedule's filled up, and you're making all these, you're saying no to a lot of things, and maybe even good things. You're just not choosing them because you're always willing to say yes. Um, you know, that that can happen. Uh, wanting to be, pe- please people. Um, could that possibly be, us. I mean, in modern day, it could be just you've made a lot of commitments. You Every time somebody asks you to do be on this group or this or that or help with this, you always say yes, and it's squeezing out your time for 
the Lord. Is, is, that, is that a possibility? So let's look at the next thing that they did in verse 10. Nehemiah 13.10 He found that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had each fled to his field. So this could be a couple different reasons. Well, there's kind of two groups here. There's the people who didn't give the Levites their possessions, or their portions, and then there's the Levites themselves. So the first could just be greed, potentially. Maybe this is related to what Jesus talked about with money um, and Riches and a desire for riches, the deceitfulness of riches is specifically what Jesus says in Matthew 13. The deceitfulness of riches, you know, it'd be easier. You get, you got all this grain, you got all this money that you get from selling the grain. It's like I don't want to give 10 percent to the the temple. We haven't done it for 100 years, you know. The temple was just rebuilt, you know, a little while ago, and when we were off in Babylon in ca- captivity, we didn't have to give the 10 percent, and I kind of like that 10 percent. And I could get a nice new fishing boat or something with that 10%. And so your neighbor does it, and nothing happens, and then his neighbor does it. And next thing you know, the Levites can't even eat, and so they have to go back. So it could be greed. Is there any area where, in our lives, where money has got a hold of us? You know, it's like, man, I know that I should be following God here, but money has a hold on me, and I've, I've made a decision um, to put money first. You know, the Levites, we don't really know if this was good or bad. I mean, it, it doesn't really say. So it could be, it could have been just fine. I, th- I don't think God would begrudge them if they're there starving in the temple, and they're like, "We've got a." I don't think God wants us to die here. Let's go back to the fields until something changes. I think that that's possible. Um, that kind of fits, though, the cares of this world. Well, it's possible that maybe they were short on food, and they're like, "Well." This is really hard. Uh, we're not getting very much. Half the people aren't tithing. Let's all go back to our. Let's all go back to our fields. And um, it really fits that idea of the cares of the world choking out worship. Even if it's not individually makes sense with each individual Levite, but you think about it as a picture of the whole nation. That's exactly what happened. The cares of the world choked out worship of God. It's like, look, I want to be here and I want to be running the temple and I want to offer sacrifices and I want to worship. Worship, but nobody is providing, and so. Um, we've all got to go back out to our fields. And so the cares of the world literally choked out uh, the worship of the nation, which is really sad. Um, and I don't, We don't know how that worked out with the Levites individually. Um, they may have been doing the exact right thing by leaving, leaving the temple to provide for their families. Um, but we don't know all the details there, so that's somewhat speculation there. So that's the next thing. Um, The next thing that they did with what they weren't supposed to be doing is in verse 15 and 16 where they were working basically on the Sabbath. Uh, this also could be, could be money. Um, again, potentially greed. It could be unrealistic expectations. I mean, think about this. Is this a problem in our culture? Keeping ourselves so busy that we don't have time for the most important things. Think about that. It's like, well, but if I take this day off, then this and this and this isn't going to get done. And and then, you know, um, I've just got to have this much, you know, whatever. So I'm just going to have to forego the Sabbath and and uh, 
and go ahead and sell even though we promised we wouldn't? Is Do we ever convince ourselves that we have to do all these things that we don't really have to do and it chokes out the important things? Could be keeping your house so clean you don't have time for your kids. Could be um, if you're a homeschool mom, you feel like you got to give like a Harvard education to your kids and you don't have time to do anything else other than prepare and you don't get time to read your Bible. Um, the reality is is that God is not going to give you more to do than you can do in terms of each day. So you can just trust the Lord in that. You know, It's like, well, I did my best here in this area and it's not, I'm not the best homeschool mom in the church or whatever, but I did my best. I And take a break and go read your Bible and pray. Um, if the th- commitments you have to do today are more than you can actually physically do, then something's not right. Um, I don't. It could be with unrealistic expectations. It could be you need to ask for help. It could be something totally different. It could be um, a lot of different things. But the reality is, is you need the Lord. And anything that's squeezing out your relationship with him um, needs to be reevaluated and what's going on there. Unrealistic expectations. Uh, the next one could be misplaced priorities. In 23 through 24, we see that they married uh, foreign women and their kids couldn't even speak Hebrew. And we talked about this two weeks ago that it's not saying that um, the Jews couldn't marry Gentiles. We've got the whole book about that and Ruth, and she was a Moabite. But she wanted to follow the Lord, and that's really what this is talking about. Is It's not talking about interracial marriage. It's talking about marrying an unbeliever who doesn't want to follow the Lord. And there's a lot of examples of that um, in, in this passage, but also in the, in the Bible of the negative examples they bring up Solomon. The positive examples would be like Ruth, where it speaks really positively of this marriage between the Moabitess and uh, someone Jewish because they want to follow the Lord. And that's really where the, 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 the problem is. And so this seems like a case of misplaced priorities. It's like, do I want to follow God? Um, well, but this, Mo, this lady from Moab is so pretty. Or maybe just comfort. It's like, man, no, there's no one else here to marry. So... I really would, you know, like to have a wife, so I'm going to go ahead and just, you know, do this because it's the only option. Um, it could be just compromise. It's it's a misplaced priority. You know, anything that comes in where you say, you know, I know God wants me to do this, but I, I've got to have this. You know, this this other thing is mine, and and um, if that means not following God or not doing what He wants, I'm I'm going to just have to hold on to it. And that's what they did here. Um, they put the priority of marriage, getting married, over following the Lord, and even of their kids knowing the Lord, which is really sad. You know, these kids who who didn't even speak Hebrew, surely uh, we can read between the lines there, they didn't know the Lord. Um, that at this time, um, it seems if you don't want to take time to teach your kids Hebrew and the Word, then they probably weren't taking time to translate the whole Old Testament into Ashdodite or whatever they were speaking. Um, and so they probably just didn't know the Lord at all, which is very sad. So definitely misplaced priorities. And then there's one more that I want to talk about. 
that is just a guess. And there's not a verse here, uh, again, just reading between the lines, but trying to apply it. It's possible that they, this doesn't seem out of the question to me, that they were leaning on past accomplishments. Think about what has really happened just in the just in the recent past. They rebuilt the temple, and then they rebuilt the walls, and now all these people are coming to repopulate Jerusalem, which was basically uninhabited. It would be really easy, I think, for them to look back and think, man, we did all the big things. I mean, look at this. No, For hundreds of years, this Jerusalem hasn't been inhabited. Look, we rebuilt the walls, we rebuilt the temple, and wow, we did a lot, you know, and I'm sure God won't mind if these little things, you know, we, we compromise in because we did the big things. Um, that seems possible, to lean on the past accomplishments and compromise in the small things. The reality is, is that the everyday life is big to God. We see that all over the Bible, that the little everyday things are the big things. Um, and that's where we get this idea of a walk in the Bible. You know, it's like, walk with God. Um, we're following Jesus. It's like these little every, step after step after step um, every day. The little things you do every day is your life. And that makes up um, your walk with God. I mean, think about some of the verses like uh, Psalm 1, talking about the tree uh, that's planted by streams of water. That's the person who's following the Lord. They're meditating day and night uh, on, the, on His Word. It's, it's the idea of, of their walk. And, and, you know, it contrasts that with the unrighteous. And it's talking about their walk. They're sitting in the seat of scoffers and, you know, um, all these things. So I want to kind of wrap kind of this up with an illustration, which could be for the kids, I guess, but just really anyone. I think everyone kind of benefits from illustrations. You've probably seen this before, but uh, it just related so well to this, I thought can't hurt to see it again, but I'm basically going to use an illustration, a prop, to talk about this idea of what is um, pushing out our relationship with God, what's getting in the way. And So I put, I got these two big rocks which are going to kind of symbolize um, your, your walk with God and your loving others. So that's, you know, Jesus says the two big commandments, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, so mind and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself is the second. So these would be the priorities that we should have. And then Okay, this is going to be your you could call it your day or your week or your month or your year or your life, any one of them. And so you want to put God first. You've got to put God first and then, you know, loving your neighbor is always going to go with that. Like first John talks about if we love God, we will love our neighbor, but so that's where we start. And then I've got all these other little rocks, which are basically, you could just say everything else that you have to do in your day. You know, there's a lot of other things that are, you got to fit in your day, like eating, you know. you got to eat. And uh, the vast majority of days you got to eat. Every once in a while you might be able to fast. And, you know, lots of other things. Sleeping, got to sleep. And all the other thousand things that you have to do. So I'll just put pour all these in. Put all these in here. And then there I thought about having a third thing which would be like sand, which would be like the things you don't have to do but you kinda like to do. So that could be, I don't know, watching a movie or or whatever. There's definitely time in your life, especially when you have kids, where you probably won't watch a movie for like a full year or something. But 
most of the time, you know, you might be able to squeeze something in. Um, say it again. Oh yeah, you can watch the movie Frozen. Yeah, with kids for sure. You got time for that, but. Okay, so then you got all these. You fit all these in. I think I'm about to get them all. The other things you have to do, and when you put basically, um, when you put them in this way, they all fit. You can get them all to fit uh, in your day, in your week, um, in your month, and in your year, and in your life. You may have some of these may have to shrink. You know, like you said, at some points, you maybe maybe you don't watch movies, but. Um, Okay, now I'm going to do it in reverse. And if you put all the, you put everything else first, you put God second. So you put, you know, maybe you put schoolwork before God. You put your job before God. And maybe your family too. You put uh, books you want to read um, that aren't bad but aren't the most important thing. Then what happens is, can't get the lid on that anymore. You can't actually fit those in there. Um, it has to go in the certain order. And if you had sand, which would be the things you just kind of want to do that aren't even necessary. Imagine if I put a layer of sand in first. It'd be even worse. It'd be sticking out even this far. I just couldn't think of a way to do that without making a mess up here. So, <laughs> um, But it'd be even worse. These would almost not even almost be in there. Whereas now they're like kind of in there, but they're mostly sticking out. And it's a good illustration to show like our life. I mean, it's like if you put it in the wrong order, you're going to lose the most important things. Um, the reality is, is if if you don't have God and you don't love people, all these other little things, you're going to end up losing all those anyways, uh, ultimately, right? If you don't know the Lord, um, these other things aren't going to last eternally. Um, one day they're all going to end. Um, and so, is which one of those is our life? You know, which one of those have has our life become? You know, I think all of us when we start the Christian life, we're wanting it to look the first way, and, and over time it might end up looking like this, where it's like, yeah, I kind of got got in there where I could, and you know, yeah, maybe I'm missing out, maybe even half or more of what I should be doing, or I, I want to be doing, but um, but it's getting squeezed out. And so, what are our priorities? You know, there's kind of two levels here. Not what do you know your priorities should be, right? But what is it actually in your day? What does your day actually look like? Because you can give the right answer and say, well, I know my priorities are God and my family and the church family and others. But then the way we actually live our life is different. So what, what are our priorities? Um, our time with God time in prayer, time with your family, time serving others, like all those things, they're important. Um, but what about your actual day? What would your day say? What if somebody couldn't hear what you said to that answer, but they just saw your day and they took notes? You know, it's like, would your day, well, there's someone, God, who's watching, and uh, he knows our heart. You know, this, uh, this is a good illustration in general, um, definitely about God, but just in general. Um, think about 
there's a lot of times in your life when you, if you don't put the first things first, you lose the first things and the second things. You know, think about high school. This is a good example, I think. Um, high school, you want to have comfort, right? So you decide, ah, I'm not going to study. I'm not going to do my homework. And so you don't. The, the interesting thing is the kids that forego their comfort and it's like, ah, I'm going to study because if I study now, even though I don't want to, I'll hopefully I'll get some scholarships and then college, college will be paid for and then so on and so forth. And the people that give up comfort, you know, in the moment, a lot of times in the end, lose comfort at, in the long run, right? They end up working at a job that's much more difficult than uh, they want and they can't get the job that they do want because they decide they chose this moment of comfort and sacrificed their long-term comfort. Um, it's really sad uh, that there's a thousand examples like that in, in our life. People it could be money. It could be the exact same thing. Money goes in first into the, into the bucket and, you know, they know person might know in their mind, like, well, family is more important, but they end up spending so much time trying to get money for their family that they end up not even knowing their family and spending time with them. There could be a thousand things like that. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of examples in life. Um, there's a lot of, there's some Proverbs in, in the book of Proverbs about it. People that want to work hard end up working, um, have, working their way into an opportunity to rest. And the people that are lazy work the hardest. And that really is, is the same kind of idea where you, if you put not working or comfort first, you end up um, working harder in the end, you end up losing even the comfort you have. And so harder to procrastinate or, you know, if you are kind of lazy at your job, you're going to lose your job and then you're going to have to go look for another job, which is going to be work. And then you're going to probably get a worse job. <laughs> and choosing comfort in the moment ended up led to losing comfort over time. Um, so we could we could apply this in a lot of different ways. Um, talk about it just in general, but specifically we want to apply it to God. Um, and so maybe just ask you some reflection questions. There's one specific thing that I kind of want to talk about that is obviously not in this passage uh, specifically. Nehemiah 13, but I feel like it might be one of the biggest things that fills, you know, whatever you want to call it, our day, our week, our life uh, first. And that is the phone or the computer. You know, think about your day and if how much of it gets poured into that. You know, just statistically, a lot. Um, As a modern person, a lot of time gets poured into it. And screen time can be a huge life filler. And uh, I, uh, I have an iPhone, and it has an app that you can turn on called that's built in called Screen Time. And it'll track everything you do all day long, all week long. It'll give you an average and tell you exactly every app that you clicked on, what times of day, and everything. And it was shocking and scary. It was like, wow, that's how much time I'm spending on these things? This is scary. And so that might be the first question you just ask yourself is like, do you, are you aware of what is filling your life? Just, are you even aware? Because you could not even realize, wow, I'm spending this much time on this, 
you know. Uh, I talked about this before, and I remember it's really kind of probably not a good example, actually, that I shouldn't. It's, it's, uh, don't take offense at this, ladies, because I don't really have a right to speak in this, but there's the Bureau of Labor Statistics, Statistics keeps averages on all these things, and they survey people, and one of them was makeup and how much time ladies spent putting makeup on. It's kind of interesting that the government wants to figure that out, but um, I guess they want ladies to be productive. But it averaged out to more time than people spend praying. It's like, wow, American average, more minutes are spent today on makeup than praying. It's like, that's sad, you know. Um, so are we even aware? You know, it could be our life. You know, our, uh, do you know what's going in? And then the other question I would have is, is it intentional? Are you putting it in just however, whatever feels convenient, or is there an intentionality that's like my day, I want to be intentional about my time. God gave me time. I want to redeem the time. I want to use it wisely. And so I want to put the first things in first. Um, do you know what's going in into your, into your day? Um, and so just I got a couple of questions here that I took from another pastor at some point, and I put them in my notes, and I have cannot remember where it was. So someone else thought of these. They're really good screen time questions about your screen time and time entertainment time and and I thought I would, I found these. Uh, I wish I could remember who it was, but I couldn't figure it out. Um, but it wasn't me, so. All right, here's, I got just a few questions just specifically about that, because it seems like a big one in our culture. Does my screen time leave me more recharged or more depleted? Is my screen time enriching my time with Christ or eroding it? Those are two good ones. I mean, think about, does it leave me more recharged or depleted? If you're up in the middle of the night, you know, on your phone or something, it's like, yeah, of course your day is going to be more filled up. It's like you're tired when you get up. You don't wake up as early. Is my screen time enriching my time with Christ or eroding it? It could be multiple things going on there. It could be just the time, amount of time is eroding it, or it could just be distracting. You know, I, I have a friend that was telling me that they made this commitment like when I read my Bible I'm going to put my phone on the other side of the room because I realized that as I read my Bible and pray in the morning I pick up my phone like four or five times just like something comes in my mind and I, and I look at my calendar or I look to see what you know something that pops up and in that way it could be eroding it or it could be just detrimental to it in terms of just sin potentially um, obviously erodes our relationship with Christ Unconfessed sin. Okay, third question. How consistent is my personal devotional life compared to my screen time habits? How consistent is my personal devotional life compared to my screen time habits? It's kind of nice if you do your Bible time on your phone, like you have a Bible app or, or a prayer app, you can literally just compare it. It's like, oh, well, there's my prayer app. Oh, wow, and there's Facebook. You know, it's like, wow. Um, just rank ordered for you there. How much am I aware? This is what I already asked you. Am I aware of how much time a day I spend on different things slash screen time? How would I order my day if I prayed about it and was intentional rather than letting habits dictate my day? So how would you order your day? Would your day be different if you sat down and asked yourself and prayed about it? God, how do you want me to order my day today? You know, the reality is, is you could probably fit all of it in. I mean, I bet, 
my wife and I, we both have that screen time app on our phone, and we set it up to where it's actually limited. So it's like, how much we set, and we talked about it, how much time a day do you, would you feel good about being on Facebook? Which I don't have a Facebook, but my wife does. I think she said, I can't remember how many minutes, five minutes, ten minutes, I can't remember, something like that. I don't want to spend more than ten minutes. And so we just set it up, and we talked through it. And um, it's, it was helpful just to think about. Um, the question is, how would I order my day if I prayed about it and was intentional rather than letting habits dictate my day? Um, you know, at least for me personally, if I don't do um, my time in the Word and in prayer in the morning, it's much harder for me personally. For somebody else, it might be something different. But that's one thing for me. It's like, man... If I do it first thing in the morning, that's so much better for me, uh, spiritually and um, priorities-wise, to get it done when the kids are asleep um, and things like that, when there's no distractions. Two more questions about screen time that I thought were good. Are my digital desires serving my God-given duties, or are they distracting from them? Are my digital desires serving my God-given duties, or are they distracting from them? I think you can use Facebook for God. I mean, yeah, I think it's good to see your friends from high school and see what's going on in their lives and pray for them. And it's like, wow, this is what's going on. This person's getting divorced. This is this person lost their job, and just say a prayer. It's like, God, have mercy on this person. Be near to him. It's like, I feel like that's a. I don't. I feel like there's good things that can come from it. Um, it's not all bad, but the question is again. Uh, I think. Priorities and intentionality and prayerfulness about about how God wants us to use it. Okay, this is the last one. This is kind of an overarching question. In what areas am I doing well in my priorities? And is there a way to cultivate that more? You know, it's like, maybe there's some things that you're doing really well. It's like, maybe you do get up every morning and you read your Bible. It's like, you put the God rock in first. It's like, that's great. But then maybe you don't prioritize family. You know, it's like, wow. And then I fill my day with all these other things, and family is the thing that gets always left out. It's like, well, may, how could I pray and ask God to help me for my family life to look more like my spiritual devotional life where I'm intentionally setting aside time? Like, hey, I want to spend time with the kids. I want to pour in to my relationship with my wife or husband. And... How can I do that and not just let it slip every day at the end of the day? Uh, we're all full, so just a quick note here or there, just a quick hello, uh, how, how was your day, and then fall asleep or, what, or whatever it looks like. There may be things you're doing well and maybe other areas. It's like, well, how does that look? And, and you can be thankful and praise the Lord and thank him for the areas where he's helping you and then ask him, how can this spread into more of my life? And then finally, I just want to just say in general, I would guess, I mean, for most of us, it's like, wow, I, I want to be doing better, <laughs> right? It's like, it's like, I don't have it all. I don't have it all figured out. And there's a lot of, there's areas I want to improve. So what do we do? Well, we can pray. We can ask the Lord to help us, ask God to forgive us where we failed. And we can lean on each other. I mean, think about this whole section in Nehemiah 13. 
it's Nehemiah calling them out and reminding them what's important, right? So it's like iron sharpening iron. We need one another. We need one another to, to help each other. If you're married, talk to your spouse about it. Maybe uh, if you really want to get really confrontational, maybe ask your spouse, how do you want me to prioritize my day? <laughs> and it may be very different than what you think and you want and something to wrestle with and pray about. Um, or ask yourself, where am I? Which one of these am I really falling short in? Which which uh, thing is really filling up my day um, that I don't and I don't realize it? Things like that. Um, a lot of times, I think, at least for me, my spouse is more aware sometimes of my me and and my habits than I am. Like I don't always say that, and then suddenly. I realize I said it five times, like, well, maybe I do always say that. Um, or whatever it is. So we can ask our spouse. We can ask God for help. We can pray um, one another. We can ask one another for help. Uh, our friends, our parents, if you're, if you're a child. And then we can lean on the Lord. I mean, just some of the verses we covered two weeks ago. The Lord makes firm the steps of the one who delights in him. Even if he trips, he will not fall headlong for the Lord holds his hand. That's encouraging. It's like our lives and the Bible doesn't end with Nehemiah. How discouraging would it be if the Bible ended with Nehemiah? It's like, and they tried to commit to the Lord and just like always before and then they never did. They, all, they always failed. Like, wow. That's not how it ends, right? It ends with Christ, right? Christ came to give us a new heart and promise he'll be with us um, and defeats sin and death and Satan. Um, and so... We can lean on him. We can look to him that this failure of Israel and our failure in our life isn't the end of the story, right? Jesus is. And what he did on the cross is the end result, is the victory is in him and his spirit and trusting him. And so he can help us. Um, this doesn't have to be our life or our, our story. You know, past failures don't have to be um, the future because we can lean on the Lord. Um, because we're not dependent on ourselves and on our own strength to figure it out. We're leaning on God to help us. It's not just um, type A personalities. You know, I'm going to make a list and I'm going to do this. and It's like, that's good. Uh, but ultimately, you can't do it on your own. You need the Lord. You need to trust Him. And He, uh, and he will help you. He's promised to. Think about this, Jude 124. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless, before the presence of his glory with great joy. That's God. That's Christ. Christ is able to keep you from stumbling, and when you do, to present you blameless, to, to wash your sins, to wash you to wash you, and clean you, that you can be with him. First John 2, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So, that's a good verse for us in this. It's like, Oh, God wants us to put him first, to lean on him every day, to spend time with him, pour into our families and into our our, our life with him, our devotional life with him. And when we don't, we can go to him, and he, he's still there for us. We can ask for forgiveness and ask for help going forward. And so let's lean on God to help us. He's promised to help us by his spirit and by faith, and we can uh, we can keep one another accountable and we can trust him that he'll show us and he'll convict us 
and he'll help us.